Coming up, it's three of a kind at the House of Kraus. Kim Coates talks Sons of Anarchy, Ted Kotcheff talks Rambo, and James Randi, the amazing James Randi, talks Johnny Carson. And it was so crazy and violent and psychotic and funny. I said, you know, this guy's not for me. I'm, I'm really careful with my bad boys. Rambo, in fact, I conceived of it as a kind of a, like, as a kind of a suicide mission because he had traveled now. He was probably looking for a place where he could be accepted in America. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner, but they treated him like dirt. He yeah. comes into this American town and they kick him around like a piece of rubbish. They need promise of something in the future, promise that there are ghosts or gods or demons or whatever out there that are going to do something for them or to them. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, shut the door behind you. Don't let all the cold air out. It's hot out there. It's cool in here. Come on in, grab a seat at the bar, pour yourself a drink, maybe go in the living room. It's really cold in there. You could hang meat in there. We've got the air conditioning is blasting in that room. Make yourself at home and enjoy not only the cool air, but the cool conversations. Later on, you'll hear from James Randi. You know what he did? You know how I found out about James Randi? He executed Alice Cooper on stage for two years during the Billion Dollar Babies Tour, but there's so much more to him than that. Stick around, you'll find out a little bit more about him later on. Then Ted Kotcheff will be here. Ted Kotcheff directed a lot of movies that you've seen, from Weekend at Bernie's to Wake and Fright to North Dallas 40 to The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. He's here to talk about probably his most famous movie at all, First Blood. That's the movie that gave us Rambo. First up, though, Kim Coates is here. Kim Coates has played good guys on television shows like Prison Break. Uh, he's played oddball bad boys in shows like The Sons of Anarchy. He's been in movies like Goon. He's a stage actor. He's all around a good guy. He's here to talk about his big break, his big television break, the show that turned him into a superstar, Sons of Anarchy. He almost didn't get the part. Let's listen in. From what I understand, you auditioned for two other parts. Nothing really happened. Three months later, you're playing golf. You've got your phone off because you're on the golf course. Damn you check straight. and you've got 18, e or 18 emails Damn or 18 straight. voicemails or something saying, get in here right now. Tell me what happened. Yeah, it, it was really crazy. I had decided that it was time to do something uh, like a regular on a television show. They sent me Sons of Anarchy. I read it, the pilot. Um, it was pretty amazing. It was an amazing read. So I read in, I went in. We all had to audition, everybody. Charlie, Ryan Hurst, everybody. Probably not Katie Seagal, because she was married to Kurt Sutter, so maybe she got a free pass. <laughs> but I remember auditioning for Clay. I was too young. I auditioned for Bobby. I wasn't right. But I'll never forget the experience. They thanked me for coming in. Um, it was probably maybe two months later, maybe maybe two, maybe three. You might be right there on, on your research. But nonetheless, I'm on the golf course, like you said. I never turn my phone on the golf course because uh, I'm a freaking professional. I like to think <laughs> I am as I smack the ball into the woods every other shot. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot of messages. And they were from my agents and my managers and my wife going, well, you've lost it now. And I said, what happened? Kurt Sutter wanted to see you six hours ago. For what? They're reshooting the pilot. They've looked at the pilot. They've thought about this. And John Langraff, our fearless CEO of FX, decided to spend $1.4 to reshoot the pilot because they fired the original Clay. They hired Ron Perlman that morning. Ron had to go to Fox Studio to, to test. They hired him that morning, and they never had Tig. 
They never had this character, the Sons of Anarchy, this, this, this you know, Sergeant at Arms, Tig character. And they realized they'd screwed up on that, so they needed Tig. And they never forgot my audition. They knew me as an actor, obviously. They wanted to see me six hours ago. And I said, well, call. They did. Kurt said, can you be here in 10 minutes? And I said to my agents, no. It's they, funny because six hours doesn't seem like that long, but in Hollywood terms and when things are happening like that, it's an eternity, oh, right? Oh, no, I, I thought for sure it's over because they were reshooting the next morning yeah. at 5 o'clock in the morning. This is now, you know, 3 in the afternoon, <laughs> 2 in the afternoon. So I thought it was over for sure. But they said, no, if you can get there. I said, no, I'm going to go home, put my boots on, my jeans, my T-shirt. Then I'll go. So anyway, I got there an hour later. And sure enough, long room, long room. There's Kurt Sutter, tattoos, every long hair, the whole deal. And I'm walking, and I go, what's what's going on, brother? And he goes, uh, well, um, there's this character called Tig Traeger. And, uh, and I said, well, I, I need to see something. And he goes, we don't really have anything for him right now. We just, I said, well, I have to see something. He goes, well, I can show you one scene that might be in the first episode after the pilot. And I read it. And it was so crazy and violent and psychotic and funny. I said, you know, this guy's not for me. I'm I'm really yeah. careful with my bad boys. Kurt. Was it the violence that you didn't? It was just I I, I thought to myself. See, in a movie, Richard, you know this. In a movie, you read the whole movie. Yeah. You you don't know the guy yet, but you but a series. I'm really careful with my bad boys. Right. I I couldn't think of why would I want to play someone so dark, and and a series like what if it lasts for a year, two years, three? And you're going to have to live with and that I, darkness, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kurt stopped me in my in my tracks and said, "Listen to me." This guy is the sergeant at arms. He's the toughest guy there. He is psychotic, but he's going to have a moral compass that's going to blow your mind. He's going to be funny. He's going to be a championing the underdog. Trust me on this. He's going to be a full circle of emotions. Please come on this ride with us. So I said, well, uh, all right, all right. And so I, I let me think about, you know, so I said, just hang out. So I just went outside with his assistant. And I got a call from my agent like two minutes later, and she said, you can go home now. And I said, what, what happened? She said, they lowballed us. I said, oh, okay, yeah. I'm out. So by the time we signed, it was 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I, had, I was clean shaven, short hair. I didn't know who this guy was I was about to play at all, but I could freaking ride. Yeah, because you've been riding for years. My whole life. Yeah. And Kurt said, as I walked up there, he said, you ride, right? I go, oh, yeah. So I started that Harley at 5 o'clock in the morning, put on clothes, boots, didn't know how, what I was going to look like. They gave me my cut. Didn't even have much badges on it. It was just really time to... And Ron Perlman and I were meeting each other in the van going, I'm a fan, I'm a fan. We're the new two new guys. And everybody looked at us like, who are these guys? They'd already shot the pilot. Now we're reshooting. Seven years went by, man. And that was an incredible ride. Have you ever read Hunter S. Thompson's book on the Hells Angels? I have. It is, for me, a lot of the, the descriptions of why he liked to ride. Yeah. Uh, really triggered something. I mean, I think you can explain it, but for me, that was the closest uh, to in words that I've ever read about why people like to ride motorcycles. Well, you're obviously such a good, good, you know, writer because you, you, you know, good writing. And uh, I don't know. There's something about being on a motorcycle. I know that you know today. There's no doubt about it. You have to be careful that more than you've ever been in your life. Everyone's texting. Everyone's on their yeah, phones. No it's just it's so screwed up, right? Uh, but if you do ride and if you can get out there and be on the plains or in Banff or even in Toronto, outside Toronto, so many beautiful spots to ride, there is nothing like it yeah. to be uh, on, on a motorcycle. Sonny Barger, who you know started the Hells Angels uh, in the 50s, he was in the show, uh, our show, and so I got to know Sonny. 
a little bit. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 uh, I'm an actor. I'm a father. I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a husband. I, I don't hang, but to be immersed in it for a minute, it's, uh, it's a whole different life, man. That whole club mentality. Well, Tig could have been a one-dimensional character, I think, quite easily, sure. and and still been, you know, entertaining. How did you? Uh, was it on the page, or what did you bring to it that made him something that was so memorable? Thanks I'm, so much. I mean that. I get told that every day of my life. I'm so spoiled with that, those kind of comments. It's Kurt Sutter. Yeah. Sutter getting to know me and my vibe and my weirdness, my humor, my method. Um, he couldn't write for all of us all the time. You had Katie, Charlie, and Ron. You're the top three. Yeah. Then you had me and Tara and, and Opie and, and Tommy and Boone and Theo and Unser. You know, this the second and third tiers of the leads, right? So he couldn't write for us all the time, but when he did write for, for Tig, uh, I'll argue with anyone, I had the best stuff. I mean, I got the best stuff, the most emotional stuff, the funniest stuff, the craziest stuff. Tig was really, really blessed by some really great writing, and Kurt... Give him that fear of dolls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean, and necrophilia. I mean, honestly, what is he thinking? But it worked out for me. And how did Tig survive for the entire season? Because around season three, it looked like maybe he, you know, might not make it. Should I tell the truth, brother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I've heard stories that. You know, Sutter might want to have killed Tig off in season five, that whole season with Pope and right. his daughter and my daughter and watching her die in front of me the way that was so gruesome. And I, you can't even imagine what that was like for me. But uh, I was told that the high, the hierarchy of, they said, you can't kill Coates. <laughs> There's no way we're killing Coates. Yeah, yeah. So the fans would have lost. I, I don't know, man. I think I had a lot of support out there. So I was good. I didn't care. I really didn't. I had such a great time doing that show. Um, but Kurt did something really smart. Every year from the fifth season on, he would tell the leads, you're going to die this year. He wouldn't say when. He right. wouldn't say how. But he would give Ryan Hurst, Tara, Katie, Ronnie, Unser. I mean, he told them, he told them all, Theo, you know, how, what season they were going at the beginning of the season. And I never got that phone call. So I, I knew that I was going to probably last to the very end, and I did. And it changed things for you. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never got into this business to be a celebrity. You've heard me say this, Richard, and I mean it. I could care less about any of that stuff. You're not going to see me doing cocaine or dancing on a dance floor or, or you know, in, in, a, in a whorehouse. It's just not, it's not happening. Yeah. I, don't, I, I just, you know, I, I could care less about all that stuff. But... From the celebrity, uh, I, I've turned it into my charities. I've, I, you know, I can't go anywhere anymore without being recognized, and I guess that's part of being on a successful television series, right? Big time TV changes things. Like it, it, it just. Did you know that, it. Richard? Did you know of that before me? Even I didn't know the power of TV. Well, no, Did, I, I, yeah, I, I have. Tell seen me it your with, experience of how you knew that, because well, I, damn, I've, see, I, I've seen it with with other people, you know, and and uh, other people that uh, would be on television uh, and have, you know big careers on stage but then you do uh three seasons of a sitcom and you know everything's different afterwards and and your profile is raised you're writing books you're doing you know it, it opens up uh, a, a thousand doors for you you're on sons of anarchy for seven years changes everything for you and you funneled that back that success back into your charities and using your profile to do something 
a little different than a lot of celebrities do. A lot of celebrities roll around in their money and, and uh, you know, buy $30,000 pairs do of they? shoes. You didn't do that. Bastards. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just really uh, grateful yeah. that my hard work has paid off. And I, I really am grateful that I listen to my gut and I'm not afraid to fail. Yeah. And saying yes to Sons was a, was, a, was a game changer because of the power of TV, of a successful series, of a series that people so remember you from. Yeah. That was Kim Coates talking about getting the part of Tig, the oddball bad boy on the Sons of Anarchy. Now, Ted Kotcheff, perhaps you don't recognize the name straight away. Probably, if you stay right to the end of the film credits, right to the end of the movie, you'll see the credits, you'll see that director's credit comes up. And if you've seen North Dallas 40, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, Weekend at Bernie's, or the one we're going to talk about here, First Blood, you'll know who he is. He's a fascinating guy. His new book is called Director's Cut. And it talks all about growing up in Toronto. It talks about how he got interested in film. There's all kinds of stories here. One particularly interesting story about how he had to do a live television broadcast, even though his star had just died a couple of minutes before they gave him the thumbs up to go to air. It's a great book. He's got great stories. Here today, we're talking about the movie First Blood. How did that happen? How did he become involved in it? And what was his motivation for making the most famous Rambo movie? First Blood was a book, and or uh, was a script that had kicked around Hollywood for a while. Al Pacino had it for a while, apparently. Uh, nobody really wanted to make it until it landed in your hands. Can you start the story now of why you wanted to make this film? Well, I was very, because at the end of the Vietnam War, the, the, the treatment that the, that the veterans, Vietnam veterans got was horrific. They were rejected, they were vilified. The right wing thought they were a bunch of losers. The left wing thought they were a bunch of baby killers. And, you know, they were just, they'd, and none of it was true, of course. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so what happened was that, that's, that they were treated so badly coming back. After all, they'd just been fighting two years in a war. And they and they come back and they're they're rejected and they're not allowed to live in areas and they're driven away. The statistics were horrendous, Richard. In 1980, a thousand Vietnam veterans tried to commit suicide every month. Three hundred and a third of them were successful. Well, so that's why I felt the picture had had a kind of emotional resonances, and and I think that I think the American public certainly began to feel guilty about what they had done to these people. And I thought this film, that, uh, this film had this kind of, as they say, emotional resonance. Rambo, in fact, I conceived of it as a kind of a, like, as a, kind of a suicide mission because he had traveled now. He was probably looking for a place where he could be accepted in America. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner, but they treated him like dirt. He yeah. comes in, in this American town and they kick him around like a piece of rubbish. And he's a Congressional Medal of Honor and a war hero, but he's not treated like them. So in World War II, the heroes, the, the returning veterans were treated as heroes. They had marching bands. They had bands, you know, standing up saying, welcome home, you know. And but and they were treated like heroes. But the Vietnam veterans were treated like rubbish. As they say, they were vilified and rejected. And so I really, I thought that that was a great way uh, great subject matter. This this man finally had it too much. When they kicked him out, remember they wouldn't they wouldn't let John Rambo buy a hamburger in the town. They That's just right. and they dumped him 
the sheriff dumps him on the, on the outside of the town. And Sylvester Stallone, what was it about him that brought you in? Because you kind of butted heads a little bit with him during the making of the film. Not, not really. No. I, I, I loved him. I mean, the funny thing was that he was only, at the time, the received wisdom in Hollywood was he only works on Rocky right. because he made two Rocky films, big successes, but he made four other films, Paradise Alley and Nighthawks, uh, Fist, and they all died. Yeah. So the received wisdom was Sylvester Stallone only works in Rocky. Only in the boxing ring. That's right, yeah. only in the boxing <laughs> ring. And I said, no, 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 this guy's perfect. He's got the strength, but there's, like, there's a kind of a poignancy about him, which I love. It would be perfect for that part. You would understand what ha- what had, why he was doing what he was doing. And and, um, and and I cast him, but no, he was he was wonderful. We uh, what happened was uh, he was a very good writer, mm-hmm. and when he heard that I wanted to, when when I offered him the part, he said, "I understand you you're going to rewrite the scripts." Like I said, "Yes, I am." Uh, he says, "Well, I'd love to join join you with with you," and I said, "Fine, we work together." But it, but he he made and he has the thing about Sylvester Stallone, Richard. He has a good popular sense, right? And for example, the biggest biggest change that he suggested. Was it as I said? I conceived of it as a suicide mission because it was based on on the suicides of all, and he he commits Harry Carey at the end of the film yeah. in, the, in the way we originally staged mm-hmm. it in the original version. Yeah. yeah. So he he so he reaches out and he commits Harry Carey by pressing the gun that is in the hands of his colonel, and uh, blows himself away. And he did it. And it was brilliant. It was moving. It was brilliantly acted. He was great in the part. And he says, "I Ted, can, after I said cut," and he said, "Ted, can I talk to you for a minute?" I said, sure. He said, Ted, we've put this character through so much. He's, he's chased by dogs. He's pursued by the cops. They shoot him and they wound him. He jumps off cliffs into, into trees to break his fall. And I said, and he says, and now we're going to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're right. I think you're, you've, got a, you've got a real point, I said, because he shouldn't die at the end. Because that means the guys like the sheriff in that town would win, right. even though he defeats, he, he smashes, he de- he he de- he, de- he, de- he de- destroys this town the way the way he used to destroy villages in Vietnam. But at the same time, he's if he dies, they win. So I said, okay, I'm gonna, I know exactly what I'm gonna do, and I and and I, uh, I shot another ending in two hours right after that in one shot. Yeah, the one that's in the film now. <laughs> but he he had this. Great popular sense, um, Sylvester. As he lo- he knew what audiences wanted to see and what they, what they didn't want to see. And when we tested the film with the original suicide ending, the audience went crazy at the end. They said, they, 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 and they, all the cards that we filled out in the test, they said, this is the best action film I've ever seen. But how could you kill <laughs> Rambo? <laughs> Exclamation mark and underlining of Rambo. <laughs> and, the and, best and, action scene I've ever seen except for the last five minutes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And is it true that at one point he said in the rewriting process, he said, you know what? I don't think John Rambo should speak. Yes. Yeah. He one wanted day, him to be one day, mute. One day we, we, we uh, were, were, working, were working together and he came and said, I, said, I, I got this crazy idea, Ted. I said, what is it? Rambo never says a single word <laughs> in the film. And of course, as a director, I love extreme yeah. ideas like this. Something that's never been done before. Can you imagine? Comes out a film, the, the hero never says a single yeah. word. An action hero An that action doesn't hero speak. Yeah. Never speaks, never speaks. I said, oh, I love it. Let's do it. And we spent two or three days. And finally, I said, on the third day, I said, you know, Sylvester, he would really speak here. And he would really speak over here. And it's forced, it's forced and unnatural for him not to speak. So I said, I'm going to be But 
the, the two or three days we spent eliminating all the dialogue had a salutary effect. It made the whole script very laconic, mm-hmm. very few words, mostly pictures. And, uh, for example, there was a great line that, that they quote in the film, of, they drew first blood, yeah. not me. Think about it, six words. Yeah. They drew first blood, not me. They're so strong. Well, I think, economical. Well, I think that, that, that echoes of that idea that you've got this action hero, man of few words, resonates even today. The last Jason Bourne movie, apparently Matt Damon only has 25 lines in the entire movie. <laughs> and he was paid 25 million bucks. Paid a million bucks a line, wow, apparently. That's good, good. Yeah, it's good money, if yep. you can get it. Very good but, money. but I think that's sort of an echo from that yes. movie. Yeah, it's true. It had a now, very salutary effect. That was Ted Kotcheff talking about First Blood. If you want to learn more about him, well, rent the movies or stream them or watch them however you watch movies now these days, or pick up his book, Director's Cut. Next up is James Randi. What a fascinating guy. James Randi is 89 years old. On the day that we taped this interview, he turned 86, probably making him one of the oldest people to ever come to the House of Crows. But I have to tell you, his spirit is young. There's a very young heart beating in that old man's body, and he has accomplished so much over the years. Johnny Carson loved him and had him back over and over and over again. He has exposed fraudulence in the spirit world. He has entertained millions, including myself, with card tricks and big stage illusions. And he was the executioner on the Alice Cooper Billion Dollar Babies Tour. For me, when I was a kid, that's all the credibility James Randi was going to need. Working with Alice Cooper on stage, playing not only the executioner, but he was also the mad tooth fairy that attacked Alice Cooper. This is, I mean, this is a guy who's really done it all. He's written books. He's a fascinating guy. And in this little section of the interview, he talks about a lot of things. Most notably, though, his relationship with Johnny Carson. This is a a story that uh, starts in Toronto, Mm -hmm. or as you like to say it, Uh, Toronto. Toronto. Uh, When you went to see Harry Blackstone at a theater in Toronto, not far from where we're sitting right now, and it changed your life. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, That's Harry Blackstone Sr. Mm -hmm. I got to know Junior, of course, in years following that, but he made a a huge influence on my life. I was going to be an archaeologist, I I thought, or I I might be a chemist. I, I wasn't too sure. But uh, one visit to the theater, and I saw him do the levitation of a living woman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness, how that got to me. And he said, and he had a lisp, by the way, so I'll I'll try to do it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you will see this young lady suspended (laughs) in space before you. She could remain there, should I so desire, for a thousand years and a day. But in the interests of time and your patience, I will return her once more to the couch from which she rose only a moment ago. Azra, descend. <laughs> and how long amazing. ago was that? Uh, 400 years at least. Yeah, at least 400 <laughs> years ago. A long time ago. And it, and it changed your life. And you are one of the only people, if not the only person that I've ever met, who can say 
with a degree of truth that you ran away and joined the circus. I did. And it changed your life when you I were did. 17. Indeed, yes. Uh, it may have been a bad decision at the time, but it's worked out okay. <laughs> yes. And since then, you have uh, called yourself a liar or a charlatan, uh, all sorts of, of oh, other yes. names. You've made your living as an escape artist, as a magician. You hung over Niagara Falls and escaped from uh, straitjackets. Yes. But then you became a debunker. Well, no, I don't accept that term. You don't. No. And this is a point that's made in the movie. Yes, indeed. I don't say debunker because that would mean that I go into the investigations with the idea that this is not true. And I can't go into it with that uh, decision already made. Now, mind you, I, I believe that the things I investigate uh, from the beginning, I, I have a belief structure that dictates to me this is probably not true. But I have to go into it to investigate it, not to debunk it. And it, we're talking about psychic phenomenon uh, right now. So-called mm -hmm. psychic phenomenon, yes. Let's be very uh, correct about that. Uh, claimed psychic, paranormal, or occult events of any kind. And you have worked with uh, laboratories and scientists to help debunk stories. And there is a great clip in An Honest Liar where you're on the Johnny Carson show and you broke an enormous story about a faith healer on that show. Yes. Uh, well, a, uh, again, a faith would-be healer. And <laughs> uh, I, hate to, I hate to do this, but uh, I, I, I find a compulsion to right. do so. So forgive me, please. <laughs> yes, that, was, uh, that particular one was Peter Popoff. And uh, <laughs> what a name. Uh, <laughs> Peter Popoff is still in business, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, after Johnny Carson retired uh, from the program, the Tonight Show, um, he called me, oh, about once every two weeks, I would get a call. My secretary would show up at the door and say, Johnny Carson's on the phone. And I'd pick it up very calmly, of yeah. course, and say something like, a dibby, dibby, dibby. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, he, he called me just... Uh, I feel he was a bit lonely because mm. uh, it re being removed from that position of, of fame, of course, and uh, suddenly retiring the way he did. But he would always apologize for using my time. How could Johnny Carson <laughs> apologize to me for using my time? Ridiculous, of course. And he talked to me about um, this fellow Peter Popoff, and we had thought we had exposed him so thoroughly that Popoff could never recover from that. But he's still in business. And John would say to me, how come? And I'd, I'd, I'd tell him, John, these are the unsinkable ducks. Uh, rather single rubber ducks, pardon me. I don't want to insult other ducks. You say. <laughs> uh, of the business, they, they'll always be in business because people don't listen. They don't pay attention to what uh, people like you and I say. And John was very big on this. Mm -hmm. He was very... Uh, very much dedicated to the fact that uh, there were phonies out there who should be investigated rather than just being wildly believed. And another uh, expression that I, I've had to correct people on from time to time uh, is they don't just want to believe, they need to believe. It's a very uh, deep need with them. They need something for hope. They need promise of something in the future, promise that there are ghosts or gods or demons or whatever out there that are going to do something for them or to them. Uh, I find this really very sad, very sad, and I've been fighting it all my life.
When they first approached you to make this film, did you think that it would just simply be uh, the story of your professional life, which certainly has been from age 17, joining the circus, running away to join the circus, to appearing on the Johnny Carson show over and over again, to exposing uh, psychics, to uh, your hanging over Niagara Falls in a straitjacket, to all the things, breaking a vertebrae on television while <laughs> William Shatner watched as you tried to replicate one of Houdini's uh, stunts. All these things are, are the stuff that movies are made up. Did you think that would simply be the story? Did you expect that there would be a personal element that is brought in as well as they do in the film? A small correction, if I may. Okay. Uh, you called it The Honest Liar. It's An Honest Liar. Uh, so anyone who is going to look it up right. would look it up under A rather than right. T. An Honest Liar. Okay. Yes. Uh, no, I, uh, I have had so many facets to my life, Richard, uh, that... It was very hard to winnow a lot of material, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to go through so much. Uh, there are huge sections of my life that are left out, which means that I'm probably going back to Kickstarter again. <laughs> yeah, there'll uh, be a sequel. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, incidentally, the Kickstarter thing is so fascinating in itself. Well, this is how this movie was paid for, right? Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, we asked for, for $52,000, and... Before, uh, I think, four or five days had gone through, uh, we had $120,000. Wow. Wow. And yeah. it's, it's still being added to. And we have all kinds of wonderful things that we give away, of course. But I, I just wanted to mention the Kickstarter is a wonderful, wonderful project. And I'm very proud that uh, they did so well for us. Mm -hmm. so, in any case, uh, yes, I, uh, I have an, an idea that this may be the beginning of a brand new career for me at 85, <laughs> if you can imagine that. So i got to hurry along. I've got to do it very quickly. Uh, it's all on 45s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I, I'm looking forward to uh, doing more on the uh, An Honest Liar. I think that uh, there's much more to be developed. And every time that we do a showing of this film, as we're doing right now in Toronto, uh, I get questions afterwards saying, uh, what are you going to do next? What about so-and-so? And what about this? And right. they, they bring up episodes, you see. My whole life with WOR Radio, mm -hmm. AM and FM New York, <laughs> uh, is, is, is fascinating in itself. I had such guests there. I, I would sit there with Lester Del Rey and uh, Fred Pohl. Now, these are science fiction right. names that uh, your listeners may not be familiar with. <clears throat> but I sat there with these people and just basked in the fact that for five to five and a half hours every night starting at midnight, I would be talking to these people, and the time would fly. Mm -hmm. I would look up at the clock. It's 3.30. We haven't gotten around to whatever. Yeah. You yeah. know, we've got to hurry along. But having guests like that uh, is it, so... It's so flattering to know that these people would sit in front of a microphone half of the night just to talk to me about things that were of interest to me. Well, and it was an enormous listening audience, too. Oh, yes. And, uh, we, uh, we reached <clears throat> all the way down into Mexico <laughs> and the prairie provinces yeah. uh, very easily, you see, we were in New York. Right. And uh, this was... Uh, uh, 100,000 watts AM. Yeah, that's and, huge. I mean, for people that oh, know, yes. that's like the, the Wolfman Jack and those guys, when they were broadcasting out of Mexico, they were 100,000 watts and blasting all over the United States. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, the interesting thing, I, just a little bit of a, an aside observation here. <laughs> we had fluorescent lights 
in the studio. <laughs> now, we were in Carteret, New Jersey, not in New York at this time. Right. We started in Carteret, New Jersey, where they have pig farms. Uh, we kept the doors closed <laughs> because the, uh, the aroma was not exactly <laughs> pleasant. But that's where the actual transmitter was. We never had a light switch. So the no. lights were just on 24 were, hours a day? All the time because they weren't <laughs> connected. They were on Velcro, and we had the, the negative Velcro on the wall, and we had the positive Velcro on the back of the fixtures. We put them any place we wanted to. From the radio field, the RF field that was there, so radio the, frequency field, it lit all of the fluorescent cubes. If you went to the cupboard where they stored the fluorescent cubes, you, you were tubes, pardon me, you were blinded. It was astonishing. Wow. That's amazing. None of it was connected up. Now, what that did to my reproductive powers, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think if I'd had children, they'd be all monsters of some kind. Or, or, or long and very thin, tubular. Yeah, could, but incredibly bright. Yes. And incredibly bright. <laughs> very good. Thank you. That's the amazing James Randian. That's actually what he calls himself professionally. That's what I call him personally. I loved meeting him. They often say, don't meet your heroes because you'll just be disappointed. Well, I was not disappointed meeting James Randi. When I was 12 years old, I bought a book called The Magic of Yuri Geller as revealed by the amazing Randi. And I still have it. It has moved with me every single place that I've ever lived. And I got him to autograph it, which he was very gracious to do. Uh, he did magic tricks for me while we were talking. Uh, he was just a delight, inside and out. If you want to know more about The Amazing Randy, pick up any of his books. There's a lot of them. Or watch a movie, which you can find probably on Netflix or whatever streaming service you use. And it's called An Honest Liar. And it's a fantastic look at one of the most fantastically interesting people you're likely to ever meet. And with that, I say, that's all there is. Thanks for coming by. We really love it when you come by. Without you, there would be no us. We're glad to host James Randi, Ted Kotcheff, and Kim Coates, but without you, there'd be no point in having these conversations. So please come back and see us every single Monday. We put a new show up every single week, and you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows, it just might be one of your favorite people. So come back and see us. 